Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Have you ever heard about the professional worrier? There was a guy who realized he was facing insurmountable debt, and it was so bad that uh, his house was going into foreclosure, his car had been repossessed, and he was working multiple jobs, and he and his wife were, were facing this debt, yet they weren't stressed out about it because they had hired a professional worrier. And so a friend of his said, I've heard about this thing. What, what is this thing? And, and he goes, it's amazing. Uh, I don't even have to worry about it. I can sleep at night like a baby which is kind of a weird thing because babies are up all night. Anyway, he says, it's great. I'm sleeping wonderfully. I'm not even worried about it because I've offloaded all of my stress and all of my concern, all of my worries to, I've outsourced it to this professional worrier. And so his friend said, well, wow, that sounds, um, that sounds like it's not going to be cheap. Like how much does a professional worrier cost? And he goes, well, that's the thing. I mean, he's not cheap. It's setting us back 50000 a year. And, and his friend said, how are you going to afford 50000 a year? And he said, I have no idea. That's for him to worry about. <laughs> now, chances are you and I don't have the opportunity to do that, to offload all of our worries and all of our concerns to someone that we just pay for them to worry about. But chances are this morning, there's some place that we go, something that we do, where we turn in kind of a way to escape the plight that we're dealing with or to kind of cope with the problems that we're facing. For some of us, it might be eating. We turn to the fridge and as we open that or open that box of chocolates, that is our escape, that's our heaven. Uh, for some of us, uh, it might be uh, maybe going on social media because that's a great escape, right? That's actually a trap. We find ourselves scrolling and swiping. Uh, for other people, they hit the gym. I'm not sure what's wrong with them, but they, they go to the gym and, uh, you know, this is, this is the Rockies. Go hiking, man. Don't go to the gym. What are you thinking? Now, other people want to clean up and organize their home. And so as long as I have everything neat and tidy, at least I have a little bit of control uh, over my life. But invariably, for all of us, there's something most likely that's under the sun. In other words, it's something in creation it's not something that, that we find in the Lord. We find it on earth, under the sun, uh, under heaven. And so as we open up John chapter 14, we come to a place where the disciples are literally in that same place. They're in that place of, of, of trouble, of anxiety, of despair. And we find in John chapter 14 some of the most encouraging, comforting words in all of the New Testament. Uh, these are words spoken by Jesus to his closest followers, not in public like he had been doing ministry, but now privately behind closed doors in that room. And many of us know what that room is like, where those last words are being uttered by loved ones in that closed room with the, with the few closest people. And we find that Jesus offers them some incredible hope. And so we are this morning going to look at three questions that every person needs to answer before they die. In fact, I've cleverly titled the sermon, Three Questions You Must Answer Before Death. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to ask these questions and answer these questions, uh, and that will kind of uh, allow us to get these questions off our bucket list so that we can focus on skydiving before we die, if that's one of those things. So uh, the stats are in. They found that 10 out of every 10 people 
will die. Go ahead and look at your neighbor this morning. This is going to be weird, but go ahead and tell them you're going to die. Let's just go ahead and do that for a minute. You're going to die. It's okay to say that. I don't have a neighbor, so I don't need to worry about it, but we're all going to die. And can we take a collective sigh of relief? Okay, it's okay. We're going to see how Jesus can bring us comfort even with that reality this morning. So here's where we're going. Here's the three questions we're going to look at this morning. Number one, we're going to look at what happens when I die? I think we have it on the screen. What happens when I die? What is this going to look like? And we're going to see Jesus answer that question. Secondly, we're going to ask the question, well, how do I get to heaven? What does the path to heaven look like? And many of us in religion are trying to answer that question. We're going to see Jesus answer that clearly. Number three, we're going to ask the question, well, how do I experience peace in the meantime? What do I do until that day? And how do I experience the peace that Jesus offers? Now, let's, with that as an outline, that's where we're going today. Let's start with the first question and look in verse 1. What happens when I die? Verse 1, Jesus says, note in the Bible, that Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Why would Jesus say that? Why would he say to his closest followers, don't let your heart be troubled? Why would he say that? Well, we have to rewind the Blu-ray back to chapter 13 to kind of understand where he's coming from. So if you would take your Bibles, turn back a chapter, look at chapter 13. Above verse 21, you should see a heading that says something like, Jesus and the disciples have the last supper. Uh-oh, that's ominous, the last supper. Or it may say something like, one of you will betray me. That doesn't sound too good. Uh, above verse 31, you should see a heading something like, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Uh-oh, the leader of the disciples, the one who is the most outspoken, the most bold, the one who said, I'll die for you, is now being told he's going to betray uh, Jesus. He's going to deny him rather three times. Well, then you get to verse 33. Look at verse 33. And Jesus says this, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You could put the word only in there. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. That doesn't sound good. So just to recap, we're down to 11. That means Judas has already left. Uh, Peter's now been told, you're not going to die for me. You're going to deny me. And now the remaining disciples, the others are the guys you can't remember their names. They're all kind of looking around at each other. Uh-oh. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm going somewhere. You're unable to come with me. This would have put them in a state of perplexity, confusion, disarray. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a place where life kind of dealt you the wrong hand? Maybe you're here this morning and that's where you're at. You were not expecting what was just given you. Maybe it was a prognosis, a diagnosis. Uh, maybe it was a divorce certificate. Uh, maybe for some of us, it was the loss of a loved one. It was, it was a separation of a child. Just the early service, someone came and said, would you pray for my son? He, he's now saying, I don't know Jesus. That may be for many of us. A, a situation happened we weren't expecting. And we find ourselves like the disciples saying, well, this is troublesome. This is concerning. In fact, if you look at verse 1 of John chapter 14, it's not really a word I would encourage you to circle, but if you were to circle the word troubled, uh, it could be translated, it's the Greek word terasso, it could be translated troubled. It can also be translated to stir up or to uh, cause acute emotional distress, or you could even translate it turbulence. Now, uh, as I was preparing the message this week, I was like, okay, Lord, I have to fly to Denver, and I'm going to talk about turbulence. 
So, Lord, I'm hoping, I was kind of worried about the flight. I was a little concerned about it. Watch my return flight have turbulence. Anyway, uh, there, there was no problem. It was great. Uh, but if you've ever been on a flight uh, and turbulence suddenly happens, an otherwise boring, quiet, listless flight, suddenly the mood changes. If you've had turbulence, uh, people start to freeze up. Children begin to cry. Uh, the stewardesses kind of brace themselves. People like me reach for that complimentary sick bag in the seat back pocket in front of you. Um, my wife, one time we were on a flight to New York and um, uh, we hit this huge pocket of turbulence. It's the one where people asleep wake up and gasp, right? It was one of those. And, uh, and she just does not like to fly. And so reflexively, she grabs my arm and she digs her fingernails into my arm and she buried her head um, kind of behind me. I don't know what that was going to do, but she buried her head behind me. The problem was I was two rows back. <laughs> so she reflexively went to grab her husband, except she grabbed this poor old lady who was sitting next to her. Now, I don't know what caused more terror in the lady, if it was the turbulence or my wife's fingernails, getting a 30,000-foot hug. I'm not sure what it was, but nonetheless, turbulence changes the environment. And maybe that's happened to you. You've suddenly been dealt kind of a, a troublesome word, and that's really what's happened. Jesus has told his disciples, hey, things are about to change, I'm about to go to an agonizing death at the cross. I'm not going to be with you much longer. And so, in case you missed it, the remedy or the solution in verse 1, is to have faith in Christ. And we'll come back to that later. But in the meantime, Jesus goes on to say, listen, let me give you some words of, of comfort. I'm going somewhere, but I want you to know what it's like. And so then Jesus, in verses 2 and 3, begins to tell them what it's like when we die. What is heaven like? For a minute, we're going to spend um, just a moment in verses 2 and 3 and look at four aspects of heaven together. And I'll make sure it's brief. We could, we could just do exhaustive study on heaven but I love you guys, and I want to make sure you have lunch. I know lunch is coming, so we'll make sure you get out of here on time. We're just going to look at four aspects of heaven. But look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Isn't that glorious? He says, I will come again. That's so exciting. That where I am, there you may be also. Wow. We're going to look at four aspects of heaven uh, really quick. And, and again, we have to ask ourselves the question, what happens when I die? Some of us here this morning are maybe scared of that. Maybe you've thought, what, what is it like when I die? I'm a little afraid of death. Does, does it all go black? And then just the grave. Like what happens? Do, what does the scripture say? And so we can't just come with our own ideas. We have to look at what the scripture says. The scripture tells us that all who die will face either an eternity with the Lord in a place called heaven or an eternity separated from the Lord, a, a place of eternal torment called hell. And so when we look in the scripture, um, the scripture actually speaks more about hell than about heaven. But what is heaven like? Do, do all dogs go to heaven? Uh, is it true that no Chiefs or Raiders fans go to heaven? Is that true? <laughs> if you're a fan, sorry. Well, we have to base our understanding of heaven on Scripture. And so let's look real quick at four aspects. You can jot these down. I encourage you to, or, or you can take a picture of the screen as we go through these. Number one, Jesus tells us from this text that heaven, first of all, is a place of familiarity. Listen, church, heaven is not a house, or I'm sorry, not an idea. It's not a concept. It's not a feeling. It's not your 
you know, ex-girlfriend you wish you could have married, she would have been heaven. No, it's a place. Jesus, notice, calls heaven my father's house. My father's house. You could say heaven is home. It's a place of familiarity. Just think of the synonyms that come to mind when you think about home. Home should be a place of, of safety. It should be a place of comfort. You can let your hair down. You can put your feet up. For some of us, that isn't the case. Heaven or our home is not a place of, of safety and rest. But just think about traveling and being away from home and, and just longing to get back and, and be in that place of comfort. Remember what Dorothy said? She said, there's no place like Kansas. <laughs> Jesus is comforting his disciples with the truth that, listen, it's not here. This earth, this world is not our home. In case I never understood that, my parents named me Pilgrim. Of all things, they named me Pilgrim. You thought you had a bad life, okay? Try growing up in middle school with the name Pilgrim. I had substitute teachers that would look at the roster and they'd go, okay, no one could be named Pilgrim. No one would actually do that to their children. And I'm like, here, <laughs> not a fun life. But it reminded me that my world is, or my home is not here in this world. See, the connotation when Jesus says, my father's house, the idea is, an, is of an abode. The word for abode and abide are very similar. It's the place where God dwells, his dwelling place. And what he's actually saying is, is that we make our home in him, and he's making a home in heaven for us where we'll be with the Lord forever. So it's our Father's house. Uh, I love what F.B. Meyer says on that phrase, home. On the screen, here's what F.B. Meyer said. He says, what magic power lies in that word home? It will draw the wanderer from the ends of the earth. It will nerve the sailor, the soldier, and the explorer with indomitable endurance. It will bring a mist of tears to the eyes of the hardened criminal, and it will soften the heart of stone. Can't wait to be there in heaven, where heaven is a place of familiarity. Well, secondly, Jesus says that heaven, number two, is spacious. It's spacious. Notice that Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions. You want to circle that word, many uh, it's the same word used in verse 23 when Jesus says home. Uh, the rooms in heaven uh, mean, when it says mansions there, it's actually kind of a bad translation, uh, the word mansions. A better translation would be apartments. So I don't know if you're discouraged by that downgrade as much as I was, but I was thinking I'm getting a mansion in heaven and now I just get an apartment. Uh, this is kind of a downgrade, but... Um, the idea of home here is more, more like this. It's more like an oriental palace where the sovereign lives and where he's got these individual rooms for, for all of his sons and for all of his daughters. No matter how you translate the word, the idea is that there are many dwelling places. Jesus doesn't tell one disciple like, hey, John, you're the disciple whom I love. It's funny, by the way, that John is the one who says that about himself, isn't it? John's like, yeah, the disciple who Jesus loved. <laughs> speaking about himself. It's not like Jesus says, you know, I love you, John, and so I've got a three-story mansion for you because you're the one that I love. In fact, you've got crown molding. This thing's going to be legit. You're going to love your mansion, but doubting Thomas, you're getting a hundred square foot shack, right? That's not the idea. That's not the idea. The idea is that there's more than enough room. In fact, uh, D.A. Carson said, the point is not the lavishness of each apartment, but the fact that such ample provision has been made, that there is more than enough space for every one of Jesus' disciples to join him in his father's home. 
Church, heaven is spacious. There are many rooms. Heaven is as wide and as long and as high and as deep as the love of our heavenly Father for you and for me. Isn't that glorious? Heaven's spacious. How exciting. Well, thirdly, you can clap for that. Amen. Awesome. Someone's like, finally, I get a room to myself. (laughs) I'm excited about that. Well, thirdly, heaven is prepared. Notice that Jesus says in verse 3, I'm going and I'm preparing a place for you and I'll come again and receive you to myself. Now, heaven itself, let's just speak about this for a minute. Heaven itself represents the glorious restoration of all things that had been marred by the curse. Just think about this. Heaven represents the reversal of the fall. Remember, sin enters the world uh, through Adam. And, and when sin enters the world, the way to heaven, there's that word way, the way was corrupted. Uh, the truth of God was now twisted into deception. There's that word truth. And the life eternal that God was offering was now a curse, not a gift. There's that word life. And so heaven is now the reversal of the way, the truth, and the life, where now it's restored, where now we get a glorious restoration of what we had in the garden. We now can eat and fellowship with God in a garden. We can have a restored relationship. We can sit at a, at a feast and have a wedding supper. And so here in verse 3, Jesus reassures us that, hey, if it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm not tricking you. I'm not kind of trying to be that slick salesman that says, yeah, heaven's going to be this way but it's really not. No, he says, if it weren't so, I would not have told you. I love Keith Green. Anybody know Keith Green? Raise your hand if you know who Keith Green is. If you're under 20, you may not know him. Google him later. We don't want music, you know, popping up right now. Keith Green, a fantastic musician, and he used to say uh, that, you know, look around how beautiful Denver is. Look Look at how beautiful the heavens and the earth are, and it took Jesus, it took God six days to create the heavens and the earth. And he's been preparing a place for us for 2,000 years. How glorious is that going to be? If that doesn't stir in our hearts a longing to be uh, with him, I, I have nothing more for you. You see, Jesus is outfitting our eternity in such a way that he's preparing it rightly for you and for me in an intimate, personal way. Uh, just think about how you and I prepare our home for visitors. Some of us get that unexpected knock at the door and your wife gives you the like, uh uh-oh, you know, stall them. She gives you that like, stall them. And so I go to the door, hey, I didn't expect to see you. Let's wait out front. And then she gives me the word like, okay. And so we come in and and maybe you expected them. This happens a lot. We'll have community group, we'll have people over and we'll spend hours cleaning. And my wife still apologizes to them. Sorry, the house is a wreck. I'm like, you know, I vacuumed for three or four days to get this thing in this shape. But, but maybe you are expecting someone, so you prepare a room for them, and you make nice linens for them, you get extra pillows. If they're going to stay longer, uh, maybe you, you provide a towels for them, unless it's that awkward uncle, then you just give him one towel to make sure he knows his stay is going to be short. Uh, you, you try to prepare the room for them. Maybe there's someone that likes dark chocolate, and you give them that extra touch, put dark chocolate on, on the, on the uh, dresser. But my point is, you prepare that specifically knowing them intimately. And I believe when Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for you, he's saying, I know you intimately enough that the apartment, the dwelling place you're going to have in heaven is going to be intimately for you. In other words, in Revelation, we hear that he has a new name for us. We're going to be given a new name that only he and we know. And I believe in heaven, we're going to have a place prepared specifically for us. 
Charles Spurgeon said, the place is prepared, are you prepared for it? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, your preparation has begun. Do you love the Lord and love his people? If so, your preparation is going on. Do you hate sin and do you pant after holiness? If so, your preparation is progressing. Is Jesus your all in all? Then you're almost ready. May the Lord keep you in that condition and before long swing up the gates of pearl and let you into the prepared place. He's even now preparing a place. He's, he's doing two ministries after his ascension to make intercession for us and then to prepare a place. How exciting is that? Well, number four, Jesus tells us that heaven finally is where the presence of Jesus is. He says, I promise to come again and receive you where I am. Guys, I think heaven is heaven, not because there's no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, and that's it. As if, well, that's good enough. As long as the absence of of pain is there, then I'm good. No, heaven is heaven because that's where Jesus is. And to be with the Lord forever is a glorious uh, eternity. Now, Jesus says in verse four, look at it with me. Jesus says, where I go, you know, and the way you know. Now, at this point, Thomas, of course, we know his adjective, doubting Thomas, poor guy. We're gonna get to heaven and we're gonna be like, okay, I know Peter, I know James and John. There's a couple other guys I kind of get lost with. But the, who's Tom? Oh, doubting Thomas, poor guy. Uh, you and I don't have adjectives like that in front of, there's doubting Bob, right? We don't have that, but poor guy. And so Thomas pipes up and he says in verse five, uh, Lord, let me ask the captain obvious question. We don't know where you're going. Like, how, we, we don't know the way. It's almost like someone after church today says, hey, you wanna go over to uh, that one restaurant? And you're like, well, which one? They're like, yeah, you know. You know the one I'm talking about. And you're like, no, actually I don't. <laughs> that, that's the idea. They're like, we don't know where you're going. We need the address. Show us the way. It's almost as if he's honestly asking our second question, which is, how do I get to heaven? And so to answer his question, look at verse six. One of the great I am statements, great theological, if not philosophical statements of all history. Jesus says in verse six, to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Church, Jesus doesn't just show them the way. He doesn't just say, there's the way. He is the way. Jesus doesn't just speak the truth to them. He says, I am the truth. Jesus doesn't say, you know what? I have an eternal life to offer you. He says, I am the life. E. Stanley Jones tells about a missionary who was in Africa and lost, found himself lost in the jungle. And he happened to stumble upon uh, an old um, hut. And thankfully there was a native there. And so he said, oh, I'm so glad I found you. Can you help me find the way out? And so the native said, yeah, follow me. And so he began walking into the densely packed jungle, just walked right into it. And after about an hour, the missionary was kind of concerned. And so he taps him on the shoulder and he said, uh, I don't know if we're on the right path. Are you sure this is the path? And the, the native turned around and said, Buana, here there is no path. I am your path. And, and that's almost what Jesus seems to be saying here. He's saying, I am the way. I am the only way to the Father whose house is in heaven. It's only through me. In verse one, Jesus has already said, hey, you believe in God, believe also in me. This is a statement of unequivocal equality with the Father. He's saying, I am making a statement of deity. And if I'm not honest about it, I'm either a liar or a lunatic. 
But if I am honest and I'm one with the Father, then I'm Lord. There's a legend told of a traveler who wanted to circle the globe but found himself in the Middle East stuck in quicksand. He began to sink. And of course, this is a legend. Um, Confucius walks by and Confucius says, men who fall into hole find themselves pitiful. (laughs) It'll take you a minute. Muhammad walked by and said, ah, it must be the will of Allah, and then began to walk by. Uh, Then Buddha walked by and said, well, let this man's dilemma be an example to everyone. But then he walked by. Krishna came by and said, better luck next time, and kept walking. Only Jesus came and said, I understand what it's like to be in this predicament and pulled him out. Jesus, who lived, who died, and who was resurrected, ascended, and glorified. We can look ahead at Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, I I know the way. I remember the way. I'm pretty sure I could find the way. No, he says, I am the way. Listen, church, this may be your first Sunday, first few Sundays. Maybe you don't understand the gospel. The way to heaven is not through good works. It is not through self-righteous religion. It's not through church attendance. It's not through Sabbath keeping or righteous law abiding. Neither is the way to heaven uh, through losing weight, achieving your financial goals, um, achieving ketosis, or ridding your house of everything that does not spark joy. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ who says, I am the way. Do you know Jesus? This morning, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. I didn't ask you if you were four or five years old and you said a prayer and then did your own thing. Have you submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Have you trusted your eternal salvation and your current life to the Lordship of Jesus? Have you said, Lord, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I repent of my sins. I trust you by faith. Well, then you know Jesus. You know the way to heaven and you know the way to eternal life. Well, if when we die, we face an eternity of heaven and hell, heaven or hell, if Jesus is the only way to heaven, well, then number three, the question is obvious. Well, what do we do in the meantime? In other words, when we're baptized, I heard you guys are doing a baptism in a few weeks. You just imagine Pastor Ed doing one of the baptisms. The person's a new believer and they go under the water. And all of a sudden, when he brings them up, they just rapture up into heaven. Like, in other words, why doesn't that happen? Why don't we just like, as soon as we come to know the Lord, we just translate to heaven? Why? What do we do in the meantime? What is life to be lived? How is it to be lived in the meantime? And how can we experience peace specifically for you this morning who are in that place of turbulence? How do we experience peace in the meantime? Let's skip down to verse 27 and see how Jesus answers this question. Look at it with me, verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is very important, this next part. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, there it is again, but neither let it be afraid. Now notice with me, church, that the peace that Jesus gives here is not the peace that the world gives. All sorts of world leaders and even beauty pageant contestants are are talking about world peace. But when they say that, what do they mean? They mean the absence of conflict. So the world says, hey, if you really want to experience peace, you've got to escape it. You've got to be in a place where there is no noise, where there's no conflict, there's no disputing, there's no wars or rumors of wars. We as parents ascribe to that kind of unbiblical peace. We want quiet, right? 
we want quiet in our car ride to the extent that we will grab a cow and throw it out the window. We want just keep the quiet, keep the calm, stop the crazy. In the name of Jesus, stop the baby shark, right? If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. All right, so we as parents, we don't actually want biblical peace. That's not biblical peace. That's called serenity. You see, serenity is like putting on an ocean soundtrack. I'm from Florida. I get it. And, and you sit back, close your eyes, and there's no loudness. There's no noise. You're getting a pedicure. I mean, life is good. This is awesome. But that is not biblical peace. Biblical peace is, is the, the Hebrew word shalom. This is way different than serenity. A shalom uh, is, it should be better translated, God's intended blessing and his wise rule in our lives. Um, uh, Cornelius Plantiga Jr. writes this on the screen. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. Uh, Shalom is a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. You and I in this world, when we look around, we go, this is not the way things ought to be. I'm looking around the world and I see craziness, chaos, noise, and it's not the way uh, that it should be. Why is that? Because of sin. And yet Jesus who's known as the Prince of Shalom, the Prince of Peace. He's come to break the curse of sin and to restore Shalom. You see, Paul told the Romans uh, that we can have the peace of God or have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by faith. He told the church in Philippi that we can actually experience the peace of God that transcends all understanding. And so when we walk with Jesus, we experience that type of peace, not as the world gives, not removing ourselves from the storm. But remember what Jesus was doing when it was storming? It's all crazy in the, in, outside of the boat. But Jesus is asleep in the boat. That's the type of peace that Jesus offers. Not taking you out of your circumstances, not out of the pain and out of the trauma, but in the midst of the trauma within. Outwardly, we're wasting away. And within, the Lord is doing something new. That means this morning, listen, very specifically, it means you can experience peace if you're a single mom and you're just desperate to get by. In fact, baby shark is one of your favorite things because that's helping you just live life at the moment. Uh, That means you can experience peace this morning if you are married to an estranged husband. And so when you get home, literally it is war. It is conflict, it is stress. That means you and I can all experience, we can experience peace this morning, not by the Lord removing us out of our situation, out of our problem, But in the midst of our concern, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our turbulence, we can have his wholeness. Before we close this morning, I want to give us a few take-home points, some points of application. I like to do this as a pastor. And so whenever we're kind of closing a sermon, we'll give um, some real application take-home points. When you go to a dinner, you eat a meal, uh, and you can't finish it. You know, that's a lot to chew on, so they give you a take-home bag, a doggy bag. We're going to call it a take-home point tonight, uh, this morning. So a take-home point. Uh, we're going to do four of these. So I want you to jot these down. And, and my prayer is that these would kind of minister to you uh, throughout this week. Kind of allow you to chew on them and, and think through them this week. All right? Sound good? And here's the four points. Number one, my prayer for us as a church is to set our hearts at ease. You've no doubt heard officers in the military or drill sergeants commanding soldiers 
to go from being at attention to a state of being at ease. And in like manner, Jesus is calling us not to allow our hearts to be stirred up to a place of restless anxiety. One pastor said that verse 1, you could interchange a few different words for trouble. And let me just throw these out there. These may speak to some of us this morning. Here's what he said. Maybe these will fall on some of us. He said, let not your heart be agitated. Let not your heart be anxious. Let not your heart be worried, bothered, disturbed, apprehensive, fearful, perturbed. Let not your hearts be distressed, disquieted, fretful, nervous, edgy, antsy, tense, worked up, keyed up, jumpy, or worried sick. Maybe that's for some of us this morning. We're not to allow our hearts to be worked up like that. One person said anxiety is a, is a, thr- a thin stream of fear that trickles through the mind. And if encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. My estimation is that in our culture today, and most likely those of us in this room this morning or listening or watching this right now, have some type of situation that's causing us to have troubled hearts. A distressful scenario that can kind of cause anxiety to bubble up. Listen, when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, it's an imperative. It's a command. You could say it and frame it in a positive way. He's saying, set your heart at ease. Well, how do we do that, Lord? How do we set our hearts at ease? Do we, do we just count to 10? Do we do we Netflix binge? I mean, what is this? Do we do hot yoga? I mean, what does this mean to set our hearts at ease? Well, that brings us to our second uh, take-home point. Number two, trust Jesus. I know for sure there's someone in the back saying, okay, pastor, this is getting a little simplistic. This is Sunday school. We know to trust Jesus. We have faith. We're supposed to have faith. We get it. Now let's move on to something deeper. Listen, we don't move on from faith. The new believer needs the same faith that the seasoned saint Uh, needs to walk with Jesus. We need faith in Jesus for our justification. We need faith in Jesus for our sanctification. And yes, we need faith that the Lord will bring us home in our glorification. We don't move on from this, guys. This is something we move deeper into. But it's not like we go, yeah, you, you young bucks are into the faith thing. Like we've moved on. We get it now. No, those of us who are older in the Lord, we still need to walk. And I'm putting myself in that camp, by the way. We need to walk by faith. What was Jesus' solution to his disciples being troubled? It's verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. But listen, Jesus wasn't asking his disciples to uh, transfer their trust from the Father exclusively to the Son, but to concentrate their faith in the unseen one upon the incarnate Son. He's saying, you, you know the Father, you've seen the Father. Now when you see me, you see the Father. One person said, Jesus' solution is not a recipe, it's a relationship. Guys, it's not a formula, it's just faith. It's walking with the Lord in the situations we're dealing with and saying, Lord, I don't want to be like Peter where I'm looking at the wind and the waves. I just want to keep my eyes on you. I want to fix my eyes on the Lord. In the Greek, verse 1 should read this way. You are to keep believing in God and you are to keep believing in me. It's an imperative. It's a command. And so, guys, the solution for a troubled heart is simply faith in Jesus. Now, in the verses we didn't read, you can do this later for homework, Jesus speaks about the promised Holy Spirit. 
who would be kind of the second advocate. Jesus, the first advocate, speaks to the Father on our behalf. And the second advocate, the Holy Spirit, speaks to us for us. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. You're not going to be left alone. I'm with you, and I'm going to send him, and he'll be with you. And so you can walk by faith and trust me. Right now I'm listening, uh, well, not right now, but currently I'm listening to um, an audiobook version, the unabridged version of a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Fantastic title, by the way. I love, I love the title of that one. If you don't know or have not read Pilgrim's Progress, get some translation um, and, and, and go for it. It's, it's fantastic. I believe it should be required reading for every Christian. Uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, I was just listening to it the other day. Uh, and the main, it's a metaphor, allegory. And so at one point in the story, Christian, uh, the main character, is locked in a dungeon with his companion, Hopeful, in the castle called the Castle of Great Despair. And Christian, in that state, suddenly says this. Let me quote what he says. Uh, he says, what a fool am I, in the middle of all hope being lost. He says, what a fool am I to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And then he puts the key of promise into the lock and he's able to open every door and escape his peril. You see, church, you and I have the promises of God that we can rest in. In fact, the number one command in Scripture is fear not. And it's almost always linked to the number one a promise in Scripture, which is, for I am with you. We've had this on the screen for most of the service, where it's just kind of behind me, saying, Jesus will never leave you. What a great promise this morning. Instead of fear not, we could insert fret not. Well, why do we fret not? Because Jesus is going ahead of us. He's preparing a place for us. We don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear the undertaker. You can look up for the upper taker, right? And so when we're afraid, we remember the promise that God is with us. One person estimated there's about 365 promises in the scripture. I wasn't keeping count, but I'm pretty sure that's enough for every single day of the year, unless we're in a leap year, then that gets awkward. But there's enough. God knows what he's doing, and we can present our fears and our frets to the Lord and know that what he has said will come to pass will come to pass. And so because Jesus promises to go before us, we can rest in his promises. You guys don't seem convinced this morning. You guys know we have a, a, an assurance greater than anything else. The world says, well, this is what you can put your hope in. And then we're disappointed. This is the diet. It's going to change everything. We try it. It does nothing. Oh, this is the real estate. This is the, this is the stock market uh, stock that you've got to have. This is the new thing you've got to try. This is the new place you've got to visit. And, and it never fulfills. Only Jesus can come and promise us eternal life. And so we can trust Jesus. Thirdly, don't, don't lose me, guys. Thirdly, I want to encourage us as a church to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, I know the way. He says, I am the way. And so we can follow Jesus even if we're facing a fear of death. Uh, I love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6.19 on the screen. Uh, he said this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as, I love this word, as a forerunner on our behalf. I love this word. 
Uh, it's a profound Greek word. The Greek word is prodromai. And one person wrote that in the, in the Greek army, the prodromai were the reconnaissance troops. This is amazing. They would go ahead of the soldiers and scout out what would they, they were to expect. Uh, in, in, the, uh, in the port of Alexandria, no major ship could go in um, unhelped. It was very treacherous water. And so they sent in a little pilot ship, kind of a little baby ship to go in and navigate the dangerous waters so the other ships could come in. You know what that ship was called? It was called the Prodromus. It was the forerunner. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying that's who Jesus is. Jesus has lived, he's died, he was buried, he was risen, he's ascended, he's been glorified. That's, he's the forerunner. He knows what we're to expect in our life, in our death, and in our resurrection. And so we, knowing that Jesus blazed the path to heaven, can rest with kind of a, an amazing assurance this morning. We can follow him uh, with steps of faith. So as we close this morning, I want to invite our worship team forward uh, to close us with one more song. Go ahead and close your Bibles, and let's just get settled for a minute. You're like, wait, you said four points. There's one more point. And this is what I want to kind of leave us with. The Lord loves you so much. He brought me all the way from sunny southwest Florida to share this with you this weekend. Number four, final point. I want us to consider our life through the lens of eternity. Could you just for a minute bow your heads and close your eyes? And just for a moment, I want to do something kind of interactively in our service. I want you for a minute to picture in your mind's eye the trouble that you're dealing with right now, the great torment, the great trial. For some of you, it may have been a diagnosis. For others, it may be a spiritual concern. Maybe it's chronic pain. For some of us, we're facing insurmountable odds. We don't even know this morning. We're hanging on by a thread. We don't even know how we're going to get rent paid by next week. We're struggling. I want you to consider whatever that is. And with our eyes closed for a minute, I want you to weigh the weight of that problem against the weight of eternity. Paul told the Romans that our, our present sufferings aren't worth compared to the glory that will be revealed. Just picture this problem in five years. Will the weight still be there? How about 50 years? Let's go 500 years. How about 50,000 years? Now you say, Pastor, there's no such thing as time conceptually in heaven, and I agree with you, but the concept still stands. Will this be that heavy of a weight in comparison to eternity. Just for a minute, close your eyes and consider not your failures, not your suffering, but your successes, your trophies, the things that you're proud of, the things you look back on your life and say, yeah, that was a win. Consider that in the light of eternity. What do you treasure? What do you live for? What do you long for? What do you dream about? What do you drool about? What keeps you up late at night and wakes you up early? Consider that in the light of an eternity spent with Jesus. Church, this world is not our home. Thank God. It's so much more glorious to be with the Lord forever. He's preparing a place even now. C.S. Lewis said it this way, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I want to close with our heads bowed, our eyes closed with the story of Martin Luther, great reformer, Someone asked him, who is your favorite preacher? And his response, of all people, who was the favorite preacher of Martin Luther? Here's what he said. And I believe this is for some of us this morning. 
said, I have one preacher I love better than any other. It's my little tame Robin who preaches to me daily. I put his crumbs upon my windowsill, especially at night, and he hops onto the sill when he wants his supply, and he takes as much as, his, as he desires to satisfy his need. And from thence, he always hops to a little tree close by, lifts up his voice to God, and sings his carol of praise and gratitude, tucks his little head under his wings, and goes fast to sleep to leave tomorrow to look after itself. Would that you and I have the same simple abiding faith in our God to meet our needs and to trust him with our todays, tomorrows, and even our eternities. This morning, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. You say, Pastor, I'm in that place of turmoil, of trouble. I'm anxious. And I wanted to see if you'd acknowledge that today. We didn't do this in the other services. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Would you raise your hand and just say, I just want to lift my hand to just publicly acknowledge that I'm going through it. I want to lift my hand to heaven and say, Lord, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He understands, he sees. Maybe you're here this morning and I see hands going up. Anyone else this morning? You put your hand up just acknowledging this is a weighty thing. And the Lord, I'm not making light of it. I'm not making it minuscule or diminishing it. It's, it's a concern. It's an issue. But Jesus wants to communicate his love and his truth to you this morning. You can put your hands down. Is there maybe someone here today that doesn't yet, does not yet know Jesus? Listen, the gospel is incredible. That though you were a sinner, a rebel, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin and took your sin and took your place at Calvary. He died a sinner's death, a criminal's death in your place. He died for you. Yet he didn't stay dead. He crushed death and he overcame the grave and he rose again and he ascended to the Father and he's gonna return one day. And by faith, when we trust our lives and our eternities, our soul to him, we repent of our sins, we turn from them and we turn to Jesus by faith. The scripture says, we confess with our mouth and believe, then we're born again. We can have that assurance this morning. In a moment, we're going to sing. And we're going to invite our pastors and leaders down to be available for prayer. If you raised your hand and you need prayer this morning, uh, we want to invite you to come and receive uh, just prayer, maybe wisdom for your situation. But I, I want to leave you with that encouragement. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus yet, we want you to know him. We have material to give you and we want to pray with you so you can have that assurance. And you know, just like the thief on the cross who died, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You can have that assurance. As you go to sleep tonight, you'll be with the Lord. And so I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll worship. Father, thank you for Jesus who is our wisdom, our righteousness, our redemption. We look not to our own abilities, to our own strength to keep the law, to, to appease the Father and to somehow escape his wrath. We look to Jesus who bore the wrath of God and yet rose victoriously in triumph over the grave and over sin and death. We thank you that Jesus is the way to heaven and that we can know him and in the meantime experience the true peace that doesn't come with understanding. But even in the midst of, a, of the crazy, we can experience shalom in our lives. So Lord, I pray for those that raise their hand that you would give them your peace, your wisdom, your hope and encouragement and you'd minister even now as we sing, as we minister to your heart, minister to ours, in Jesus' name, amen. 
We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.